uh, we are on the baptism of uh, of Jesus celebrated all across the church, uh, the Western church uh, in the world. And the passage is from Luke's account of baptism in chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. While all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I Love with you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Now, please don't stop me if you've heard this one before, uh, because I want to want to share with you this morning is something I know I've shared with you on a number of occasions. It's just that as we start the new year together, I can't think of anything more important than this to share with you. The story goes of a young man that went running at uh, past uh, very quickly, Rabbi Levi. And Rabbi Levi yelled out to him, young man, why are you running? And he said, I'm chasing my good fortune. And Rabbi Levi said, young man, uh, your good fortune is coming after you, but you are running too fast. When I think about that story, I think about my own life and how much of my own life has been spent on the run. Now, not running for good fortune so much, but Running for a sense of acceptance, our worth, our value, or a place, um, just knowing that I had a home, knowing that I was secure. I've run for that. I've run to know that I'm okay. I've run trying to get that by impressing other people. I've done it by grades that I would make in school or degrees that I would get in school or achievements or successes I could point to. And even more sadly, uh, achievements of my church I could point to and status of all children's achievements that I could point to. I've run trying to impress other people. I've run trying to impress God. To show God how worthy and valuable I am. And some of you heard me say before, I'm a little bit like uh, my cat who, uh, when he has on that rare occasion a really good catch, he brings it to the back door so that we can see the lizard and see what he's accomplished. And, and I've hauled things in front of God and, and said, look at this. I spend a lot of my life on the run trying to show God or show others that I'm worthy, that I'm valuable that I'm important. Paul would say, I've been running and living like a slave. Or in other parts of the scripture, he would say, I'm running or living like an orphan. Because one of the things about a slave in the ancient world is they might live in a home, but they knew it wasn't their home. And when they quit performing, there was every possibility and chance that they would be tossed out of that home. And an orphan is a person who didn't really have a home, had no family, and so they strove to try to create and secure a home. Orphans live out of fear. They practice manipulation, control, performance. They do whatever they can to secure their place in the world. I've done that, and I want to tell you it's tiring. You run that much? And you end up like the old song, running on empty. I've spent my time running. I've run to try to impress other people. But, you know, it just doesn't work. 
the first thing you probably know is that people tend to be fickle anyway. And they're all different. And, and uh, some things that might make you a hero to somebody make you a villain to somebody else. Or it's even possible that the same person could be real happy with you one moment and then very disappointed you in the next moment. And, and in my world, we call that person a spouse. But there are all sorts of people that, you know, at one moment maybe you're pleased and one moment maybe they're not pleased. People are fickle. They change. I remember a, a Michigan State football coach in the 1960s and early 70s, a man named Duffy Doherty. And they asked him, what's the hardest part of being a college football coach? And this is what he, uh, he said. He said, the hardest thing about being a college football coach is you are responsible to irresponsible people. People screaming for your head based on the last game or the last season and trying to keep them happy. And that's the way people are. And, and trying to impress them isn't very effective. You know, I remember one day I woke up and realized the people that I was trying to impress were just as messed up, actually, as I was. They were just as insecure. They were running just as hard as I was. So what did I prove by impressing them? What had that really gained? You know, another problem with trying to impress people is they're not God. And nothing in our life and world can substitute for the love of God. I'm not saying the love of family, friends, and others is not important. It is, but I'm saying it's secondary. And the love of God and living on that is foundational for our life. The late Henry Nowen used to say the problem with a lot of us in our life is, is we look for primary love from secondary sources. In other words, we set our spouse up to be God and to love us in the place of God. Or we set up our employees at work, our uh, our friends or our people in a club or our neighborhood and we try to make them be god for us and it just doesn't work you can only get the love of god from god and the love of god is never earned it's always received so impressing other people is bound to be a tiresome business and trying to impress god that's even worse how do you impress god i mean for a moment let's just think of some of the things god has made Rings around some planets, moons circling the other, exotic species of animals. I mean, do you really think God sits around with angels in heaven and a, a mighty whale jumps out of the Pacific and then goes back in? And God says to the angels, don't look at that. Look at, listen to what David's saying in that sermon. It's not happening. You know, there's nothing big enough I can bring to God's back door that's going to be impressive. I just don't have anything that big to bring. But here's the deal. God doesn't sit around waiting to be impressed anyway. God has no need to be impressed by us. God seems to have a need to celebrate who we are with us and to rejoice in the things that we do, not wait to be swayed or impressed by the things that we do. I think part of the problem is when you live your life from an orphan mentality, uh, you it gets real hard to realize that God is on your side and that God loves you and God is eager to, to um, approve and celebrate your life. Here's what I think happens in our world. I think most of us start with a fact biblically that we're a sinner and that God's our judge and God's going to, because of Jesus, let us off the hook. And that's all very nice. And biblically it's true. But do you know if you, for the first three centuries of the church, justification by faith was second 
to a theology called adoption, which, is, which means that for the first th- three centuries of the church, they didn't start with you're a sinner and you're lucky God let you off the hook. They started with you are a beloved child of God and God is pleased. And you work from the fact that God loves you to do the things that God has called you to do in the world. And I want to tell you, both of those are biblical starting points, but they are worlds apart. And I would suggest that if you start with God as your judge and that you are a piece of junk, if it hadn't been for Jesus, that you are going to have a very hard time getting to the point where you see God as a heavenly father who loves you deeply and who celebrates and approves of your life. But if you start with God as one who loves you deeply and approves of you, I think you can get to the point to realize that, yes, I do fail and I sin and I don't do everything my father wants me to do. And I love him so much and he loves me so much that I'm going I'm to work on that. But that's a whole different ballgame. A lot of us work for approval when maybe we ought to work from approval. We ought to start with the fact that we're loved and work from there rather than start from the fact thinking we're not loved and try to get God and other people to love us. It's a very tiring thing that simply through the centuries has proven not to work. I have a good friend that says, if guilt and shame were effective, the kingdom of God would have been here a long time ago. Heaven would already be on earth. We could guilt and shame our way to it. But we can't start from that. I was telling the last service, I'm thinking of uh, the last scene in, in Private Ryan. Do you remember that? Saving Private Ryan. And as an uh, elderly gentleman, Private Ryan goes back to Normandy. And, he, and he's there at the grave of Captain Miller, and he turns to his wife and he says, Tell me I was a good man. Tell me I was worth it. It's a beautiful line, but it's sad to me if Private Ryan lived the last 60 years wondering if he was loved, valued, or accepted. That's a sad line to me. That's not, I think, as God intended us to live our life. God doesn't intend us to wander as orphans looking and hoping for a home, but God intends for us to live lives of celebration and joy starting from our home and going out to places where God will send us. God wants us to start where Jesus started, knowing that we are beloved and that God is well pleased with us and that we are God's child. And so one of the things that I set out to do this year, same thing I set out to do last year, is to start living life as a son, uh, to, to bring my life back down to actual size. You've seen those advertisements on a box or in a picture. It'll say this is not the actual size. Maybe it's bigger, maybe it's smaller. And I think some of us try to play bigger than we are to see if we could be more impressive. Uh, there was a mentor to Henry now, late Henry Now, and a guy named Jean Venier. And he once said that most Christians get two calls in their life. And the first call is to do something really good for God, you know, really big. And, and so you announce to everybody, I'm doing this for God, and, you know, they, they clap. Or, you know, I'm going to Africa, and they go, yay. Well, I am. But he said the second call is when you realize you can't really do any big thing for God and that life is just a matter of living faithfully as God's beloved, loving God, loving neighbor where you are. And that's the harder call. And that's the one I'm living into.
Um, as we leave for Africa this week, this is my fourth trip, and I have to tell you, my assessment after my first three trips to Africa is that the continent is basically the same. The entire country uh, and area has not given up strife, come over to Christianity, or found a home for every orphan because I've been there. I can't claim great things, but I don't have to. Because I'm not trying to prove that I'm something to someone. I'm living out of the fact that I know that I'm someone already to God. That's my hope for me. It's my prayer for me. That's where Jesus started. The Gospel of Mark, which we're not using this morning, is just very poignant and and just stark almost about this. Jesus gets baptized in like verse 13 or 14, and then off he goes. Now, in Luke, you wait to the third chapter because you have the, the infant stories and the stories around Jesus' birth, and they're beautiful. But the action starts to go after Jesus finds uh, that acceptance and hears that acceptance that's always been his, and then he moves out. It's interesting, scholars note that when, G, when God speaks from heaven and says, this is my son, um, I love you, you are my son, I love you, and I'm well pleased, that it's pretty clear God is quoting the Bible to Jesus, which is kind of a fun thing to note. And that what God is quoting is Psalm 2, you are my son. It's a coronation psalm. It's a psalm about a king. So scholars figured out pretty quickly God is saying to Jesus, you're a king. And then he says, and, and I'm pleased with you, I'm delighting in you. And most scholars recognize that's Isaiah 42.1, that's a suffering servant. And so the picture is, you're a king, but you're going to have to suffer on my behalf. And most all scholars get that. But there's that other verse in the middle that says, I love you, or whom I love. And Scott Hare was telling me, and my Hebrew is not near good enough, but that one thing you'll notice is that your king comes from the Psalms, the writings. Uh, I'm delighting in you comes from the prophets. And you may know that the Jews divide their Bible into three parts, writings, prophets, and the law, the Torah, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And he says that the middle part is actually from the law, from the Torah. And so what God may be saying by quoting this to Jesus is, the whole Bible is fulfilled in you. You wrap up the whole thing. And I thought that was really cool. But if that's true, could God also be saying in this message, I love you, you're my child, I'm pleased with you. But that's also the whole message of the Bible. That that's, if you're going to take anything from the scripture, that's what you need to take. That you are loved as you are, and you're a child of God right where you are. And if you don't get that, you've missed the whole Bible. I wonder if that's so. And if it's so for us individually, I think it would be so for us as a church. And it teaches me this coming year, we don't have to be bigger or badder than another church. We don't have to get our church's name in the paper. They don't have to put us on TV. None of that changes who we are. We're just people who are children of God, loved by God, trying to live in that love in the world and have the love that's in us just spill over to others. Nothing impressive. Nothing maybe to write in the paper about, but it's there. I've been doing some research recently on King Herod. You'll remember King Herod, who at the birth of Jesus went over to Bethlehem and, uh, and killed the babies that were near Jesus' age, hoping to kill Jesus. And I believe that's true. Herod killed his, one of his wives and three of his own children, 
and a nephew, so I don't doubt that he did that. But he also did a lot more. He built nine palaces that were bigger than anything Caesar had in Rome. He became the richest man in the world. He paid the taxes for the people of, uh, of uh, Judea. He set out to be the greatest man who ever lived. Uh, they put statues of him in the Forum and the Acropolis in Athens. They had statues of Herod. He was big. He was famous. He was successful. He was a murderer. How did he get there? Quick story. I'm working on Herod in the library last week. And I get up from the table where I am at Trinity, and I go over to another table, and I, and I find a book that hadn't been reshelved yet. And I notice it's by one of the professors my youngest son had at UT for a class. So I, I take a picture of it, and I text it over to him. I said, look who I found in the Trinity library. He texts back to me and said, well, did you read it? I'm like, no, I'm reading about Herod right now, these big books on Herod. And he texts back to me, and he says, you know, he's got a section on Herod in that book. Huh. So I pick it up. He's got five pages. I'm reading books on Herod. He's got five pages. But I go ahead. I'll humor my son. And I look. And do you know where the five-page summary of Herod the Great starts? It starts with the assassination of Herod's father, who was wealthy, a nobleman, uh, friends of the Romans who had secured a governorship, and also at age, at, at, when he was 25, um, the father gave Herod at age 25, a governorship of Galilee. He had navigated the world for Herod and set him up. And he got assassinated. Do you know what I realized? Forty years before Herod kills the babies at Bethlehem, he's not just a biblical metaphor orphan. He's a real live orphan. He's 29 years old, and he's set now adrift in a cruel world, wondering if he's going to be next to be assassinated. And Herod will spend the next 40 years of his life murdering thousands to try to hold on and secure a place in that world. Herod will spend the rest of his life living as an orphan, and damage and destruction, as well as greatness will follow in every step that he takes. That's his story. I don't want it to be our story. We don't need to be bigger or badder than anybody else. We just need to remember who we are. That as we are where we are, we are beloved children of God. And nothing we can ever do changes that fact. As we continue with our worship this morning... We're going to do something that you may remember we do in January. We're going to pass out for you a, a star word. It's, a, it's a, a star with a word on it that often is proved for people to either be prophetic about the year ahead or something that maybe God wants to show them about where they are right now. But it's an opportunity for God to speak to each of you. And you'd be surprised the number of times that somebody's word actually does speak to them. But when you come up and get your word today, you'll be, uh, the ushers will direct you. You're going to come to one of three bowls of water. And these waters will remind us of Jesus' baptism. And for those of us who are baptized, remind us of our own and that we are beloved children of God and that that's our identity. Whatever our word says, wherever we go this year, we go there as children. So as you come forward at the usher's direction, I'm going to invite you to dip your finger in the bowl. 
mark the sign of the cross on your forehead, and then one of the pastors will be by the bowl reminding you to remember your baptism, to remember that you are a child of God, to remember that God will never love you any more than God loves you right now and never love you any less.